Hello and I'd like to welcome everyone to We Go Again. We are going again. It's Christmas Smith sitting in Gainsborough this week. And down here in London, what might be classed as Catholic of London, it's me from over field and he's got a lot to talk about. And uh, just down in uh, the motorways from uh, Robin Smith, James Marshall, and Frank Barksha. Taking aback, actually, that Christian's actually in this country. I am till tomorrow. Oh, I, I've been here for two days, so it's time, time to move on again. Um, you at least, you at least get to go to Trinity again, are you? I don't suppose you will, will you? No, because there's the Caribou Cup today, but that's it. So, no, I've not been... I'm going to be out of the country again from tomorrow, so no more football for me so i'm not sure what to start with this week because there's, there's some good stories some nice stories some horrible stories and some head scratchy stories so let's start with the breaking news actually uh, as we record this on thursday the 24th of january the search has been called off for the missing plane or just off guernsey um well just off Guernsey as much as it can be. But the search has been called off by uh, the Guernsey... <coughs> I'm not sure if it's police who are actually calling off or, or not. But I know it's a, s- a sad situation, but the pilot and the player of Emiliano... pronounce his name wrong here. Emiliano Sala. Uh, it's been called off, I think, completely, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's... Oh, it's such a horrible story. Um, I, I know, I know. Rob wasn't keen on talking about it, but you know, it's kind of the biggest, biggest football story. Um, yes, uh, obviously everybody knows what has happened. Um, and uh, as I said, you know, now um, they've uh, the, the well, it says authorities have um, have made a decision to to call off a search. Uh, that's it. They've, they've, they've given up, essentially, uh, which doesn't sit well with me. I don't. Look, obviously, you know, we don't know what goes into uh, a search for for a downed plane. Uh, it's it's hard to find seven four seven or you know a Dreamliner A three eighty in the, in miles and miles of ocean. So to find a crop duster in that same area is is just impossible, isn't it? Um, uh, it's the families of uh, of Mr. Sala and the pilot David Ibbotson that I um, I really feel for because while it, it it does it does look I mean it's a, it's a fair assumption to say that they haven't survived it's a horrible thing to say it is an assumption to make but people more qualified than me are making that assumption um, but the families because they don't get the bodies will never have that closure and it 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 must just be absolutely agonizing for them i know um emiliano salas uh sister has has pleaded with them to keep searching and that i can understand because anybody would do the same um but the, it, it the whole thing just doesn't sit right with me um i mean from i mean everybody knows who's listened to our podcasts for any length of time knows that I'm a Huddersfield Town fan. Cardiff City, obviously, one of our relegation rivals. Um, and I feel for them because they're down at that end of the table. For it, 
finding a, a striker, a goal scorer who would essentially get the goals to keep you in the Premier League is what we're all looking for down there. And I actually think Cardiff City found them, their man. Um, it's apparently, I don't know anything about him. I only, the first time I'd heard of him is when Cardiff signed him. But apparently he's a really, really good player. He's quite prolific. Um, he's been really good for Bordeaux and for Nantes in France. Um, it goes without saying he's a lovely guy because tragedy always strikes lovely guys. But, I mean, you just have to see the scenes in Nantes with all the fans and the vigil. Um, he was obviously exceptionally popular um, everywhere he's been. And I genuinely think he probably would have scored the goals that kept Cardiff in the Premier League. So... I feel for the Cardiff fans because they signed a player for £15 million. He was their record signing and they're never going to get to see him play. And that is just heartbreaking. Um, but the, the the situation itself just doesn't sit right with me. I, I mean, is your record signing? Surely you put him on a first-class flight. Why have you sent a two-seater plane that is one step up from a crop duster, as I said earlier, to fly him overnight from the south of France to the south of Wales. I mean, that's just bizarre. I don't, I don't get that. I mean, he, uh, I don't know if you guys have listened to um, his WhatsApp voice recordings he sent to friends. I mean, they're in French, but they obviously they have been translated. He says that he's scared. He thinks he, he thinks the plane's going to fall apart or it's 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 going to go down. Um, even the pilot, when he landed in Nantes, put on Facebook that um, it, he was rusty and he was relieved to have landed. And the, the whole thing just does not sit right with me at all. I mean, you're a Premier League football club. Why are you bringing your record signing all that way? I mean, it's, it's not a short hop from Dover to from Calais to Dover. It's, it's across an entire country and an entire body of water. And why have you sent a two-seater plane to pick him up? Surely you put him on a first-class proper chartered flight. I, I don't get it. The whole thing is just tragic from beginning to end. And just, I, 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 I still pray for a miracle that they that they wash ashore somewhere on a life raft. I, I, I don't understand where that assumption's come from because where do you put a life raft on a two-seater plane? I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm struggling to get my head around the whole thing. Um, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I'm, heartbreaking is the only word for it. And oh. thoughts, prayers, love, best wishes, praying for a miracle in this uh, this horrible, horrible situation. Yeah, in many respects, it's a very unreal situation. Um, it's not the kind of thing you expect. But then again, such things, I guess, can happen to anyone. And I agree with you, James. I mean, surely that if you've got, if you've been able to put 50 million down on the table to buy a player, surely you could stretch to another, I don't know, 500,000 pounds or whatever it would cost just for on a, a normal standard um, commercial flight instead of chartering, you know, this small plane uh, for you know this flight i mean i've also heard that um the pilot was looking to try and you know at one time come try and get an emergency landing at guernsey or jersey but i, I don't know whether that was true or not well, but it, yeah i heard that it made a call 
Yeah, it just—I I just don't. Und- I mean, I feel—I feel so sorry for the Cardiff supporters. You know, here was this, you know, potential hope for the rest of the season to give them some goals. As you quite rightly said, they're not going to ever see that. I mean, whether they've—I think you've got to accept that it's very unlikely they could have survived. I mean, the sea temperature at this time of year is probably at its coldest. So there's, you know, anybody who's in there without any. Um, anything like a wetsuit or a dry suit, just trying to keep themselves warm, is going is not going to survive more than an hour. So it's a case, I, but I don't think there'll ever be a case of where they will never be. The bodies will never be found, or the wreckage will never be found, because you know that's quite. Um, I think about it. I think this channel's quite a busy shipping lane, so something will turn up somewhere, but where and when. Nobody will ever know, and it's just—it's just so sad. You know, you, you just can't imagine it happening to your club. And the Cardiff supporters now have to face it. The, you know, the the supporters of the club in Nantes are just going to be thinking, you know, what happens if he hadn't signed? He would still be alive. You know, they're going to miss him as well. And it's just—you know—it's at times like this. Words are just so so useless. It just. Nothing you can really say that you know is of any is of any use. You know, you just can't you just can't imagine what everybody's having to go through. And I really feel for his sister. I really feel for Romina Sala. Just you know, everybody else is running on facts and logic, but in her heart, she firmly believes her brother is still out there. And I have to admit, if that were if I if you know, I was in that situation. Excuse me, for a member of my family, I'd want I'd want to hope that you know everything was being done, whether there was a, a realistic chance or not. It's yeah, you know, they wouldn't have been able to carry a lot of emergency equipment. We know that, but you know, it's just so difficult to you know try and try and imagine. What might what must have happened? Because I mean, if they were only flying at something like about fifteen hundred meters, then you know there wouldn't be. A, thankfully, there wouldn't be a lot of time. You know, so if yeah, if anything has, has happened and they have survived somewhere, um, it's going to be against all the odds. But I think all of us have to accept that. You know, that's it. You know, the plane's gone. The pilot's gone. And Emiliano's gone, and you know. But where do you? How do you move on? How do you go? How 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 does the family go forward? How does everybody go forward that's involved? It's hard. Well, they they can't, can they? Because they can't no. even have a funeral. Not all, yet. All they, they, all, they, all they can have is a memorial. Mm. Uh, so, so they they will never. I mean, it's, I, I don't even well, know. I don't even know when they can legally declare. It's, it's a few years, I think, isn't it, before they, mm. he can even be declared legally dead. I'd, mm. I'd, I would after the, James... the family will never accept that because they will never know. I mean, mm. who's to say that he, you know, that he hasn't banged his head and got amnesia? And do you know? What he, mm. Even if you know, I think, I, th- I think, to be honest, James, body, I think James never is too strong a word at this point because, as I said earlier, it's a bu- it's a busy shipping area. There's a lot of craft moving backwards and forwards, 
you yeah. know, through the English Channel in, in and out. So if anything's there on the surface, there's always a chance that something will be there. The only possibility that it could come to the never is if the uh, plane just went and basically sank on impact and has gone straight to the seabed. Um, and that's about 100 metres down, which for divers is not a problem. You know, you know, commercial divers and experienced deep sea divers can do that without, you know, without any issues. They've got a rough idea. I mean, they've got, definitely got an idea where they, but if they can't find anything in the 48 hours after the plane's gone down, you've got to start thinking it's gone straight down to the seabed because something would have shown up. I mean, it, I, I, we've seen photos of the plane, the type of plane it is, and it's not much bigger than, in terms of length, Possibly, what would it be, a double-deck bus in terms of length? Perhaps not even that, single-deck bus. And in a, in a wide-open uh, you know, sea area like that, that's practically impossible, as you quite rightly said. Sometimes we struggle to pick up great big you know, 767, 787 airliners in the sea. And that's, you know, they're quite, they're, you know, they're huge. So what chance people have of the rescue services have of finding a plane that size is going to be pretty difficult. So I wouldn't go so far as to say never, but I think they've got to expect the fact that it could take some time for them to locate it. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure there'll be a body located and recovered before a great for a great length of time. But at the moment the uncertainty for them is just going to be killing them. And, you know, as you quite rightly said, James, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can grieve for. All they can, all they know is the fact that at this moment in time, nobody knows where he is. And that's not a lot to go on. No, I can, um, and just my my final word on this, I, I, obviously my heart as well goes out to um, the harbour master, Captain David Barker, and all the... Um, authorities and the rescue the rescue searchers and all all the volunteers and everybody that's helped um because how do you make that decision it's you know it's it's such a such a tough decision to give up on on, mm-hmm. on a search like that and um yeah it, yeah it is i mean I, I heard an interview with um with the harbour master david barker a couple of days ago and um you know it, it seemed really really tough to, to Okay, so yeah, my heart as well goes out to them for having to make this decision. So, anyway, I think uh, unless Kristen, unless you've got anything you want to say, maybe yeah, uh, maybe move no, on. no, it, it's I think it's probably best to move on. The because <clears throat> the the problem I have with it all is that it's two people, and you have to draw a line, and forty-eight hours is long enough. It would be awful if it was my family member, but when you think about the time and effort to search for two people who are unlikely to be found, because it's only a small plane. The plane was first manufactured in 1984 as well, which um, seems a long time ago for a... It's 34 years ago, so it seems to be getting on a bit, so I'm not sure, not questioning uh, too much the service maintenance of the aircraft. It was last deemed airworthy in 2015, and its next certificate was due in 2017, 2021. 
So it's a horrible situation, but in all realisticness, the sea is a big place, and I think we'll move on to another story rather than dwell too much on something like this because it has been called today the the search. They will not search anymore, and so if anything's found, it will just be uh, happenstance and chance. Uh, so let's move and stay in France. And uh, for I was going to do a segue then, and I think I'll change my mind of how I'll do it. But let's go down to the south of France, and Monaco have suspended Thierry Henry while they make a decision on his future. Well, pretty much suspending somebody while you make a decision on their future is you're trying to negotiate with them about how big a payoff you're going to give them for sacking them. And so pretty much five wins in 20 games under Henri, who was hired in October 2018. Now, it's it's a lot of pressure on Thierry Henri, who's got only a little bit of time experience with Belgium as the assistant manager there to go in must it's a high pressure job to go into Monaco and as we've seen quite often with a lot of managers especially ones who are inexperienced the first one or two times they do stuff they fail spectacularly and then they go on to be good managers so I think he's probably got it in him still um, but for me it's it shows the the pressure he's under as they're in a relegation zone. Well, it was a, it was a curious appointment in the first place um, because it looked it looked um, to all intents and purposes that he was going to go to Aston Villa at the time, didn't it? And then he kind of turned his back on them and um, and, and went down to to Monaco, which you, you can't can't blame him. I mean, he's it's it's where he started out or where he spent time as a player early in his career. Um, Monaco are not the club now that they were a couple of years ago. They've lost literally all of their top players. Um, they've all been sold. Um, they haven't got the same quality coming through now. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not every it's not every season you get a killing Mbappe coming through your youth system, is it? So you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, this this just fire him. Just I, I, as you say, I think it's. It's the case of the suspended. He's, he's basically on gardening now, isn't he? He's, yeah. Um, go home to, and, we'll call, and we'll call you when when we come up with a package for you. Um, just, to, just to update you, James, I'm just reading a story on BBC Sport now <coughs> that as far as they understand, BBC Sport understand that um, Thierry Henry has been sacked. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, BBC Sport understands that this is mainly merely procedural and that the France World Cup winner has already left the club. Okay. So unoffic- yeah, un- unofficially, he's left. Unofficially, officially, I, Monaco still making the decision. The, the story I, I am reading is um, well, it, it, it mentions one of the names that that makes my um, little things shrivel up. Five, you know, George Mendes. I can't stand the blow. I'll stand any agent. I hate them all. They're just a cancer that needs just getting rid of from football. But George Mendes um, is apparently trying to mastermind former manager Leonardo Jardim's return. Now, Jardim was a manager three months ago, and they fired him and brought in Thierry Henry. So what would be the point of that? Um, but, yeah, it's kind of um, you've kind of um, rained on my parade there, Rob, because I, I, my, my main point in this whole thing was 
once he's suspended, you can't bring him back because how does he then go back into the dressing room and yeah. and and keep whatever little authority he still had left? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, you just, it's never going to happen. I mean, it, it, no one comes out of this looking. The person who comes out of this looking good is Thierry Henry. Bizarrely, I mean, he's had an awful run of form. He's had really terrible injuries to contend with. He's, he's playing 16-year-olds because that's all he's got. And, yeah. and yet, if Monaco just fired him, it's a clean break. You get out of there. But to suspend him while they make a decision on his future mm-hmm. just makes the club look incompetent and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, they've got a game at the weekend, I assume. Um, I haven't looked at the fixtures, but I imagine they've got a game at the weekend because it's not an international break. Um, and I just I don't get it. I agree with you, Rob. I think he's got all the attributes to be a good manager. Mm. Maybe it was, well, it definitely was the wrong job. I, I thought it at the time. Um, I thought it was a, just a romantic appointment because he'd played there and he's a, he's a legendary footballer. Um, anybody who's listening to this that is not of an age where you've watched him for as long as, as we have, I mean, you've, you've missed out because the, the guy was just ridiculously good. Um, I mean, I'm I'm talking Ballon d'Or good. He was amazing. Mm, he was, uh, and I, 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 I as well as the still time. As as Ireland, as the Irish team will uh, attest well, as well. He was good at basketball player as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but funnily enough, everyone but the Irish has a problem with that. The Irish have forgiven him. Everybody else hasn't. It's weird that. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean. I've, I, I love FC Barcelona as well as Huddersfield Town and you know we've got the greatest player of all time there the, he's won the Ballon d'Or I don't put any stock in individual Thierry Henry it's a travesty that he never won it um, mm. if, you, if you put stock in that and I, I just think that maybe he would be better going in as an assistant at the moment and doing five, six, seven, eight years either yeah. with one manager and following them around or doing it at a couple of different clubs I would love him at Barcelona. I would love him amongst the coaching set up there. Mm. He would be phenomenal. Can you imagine the kids, if he's doing the under-23 team or your B team or how, whatever it is called, in the club, if he came mm. in and your strikers turned up one day and suddenly this absolute legend is going to teach you how to put the ball in the back of the net, you are not going to stop smiling. Um, so I'd... Mm. I think maybe he needs to step back from the number one at the minute and be a coach, yeah. be an assistant, and, and yeah. earn his stripes that way because he's he's maybe he's maybe not enough of an arsehole to be a manager. So he either needs to go in with, and have a bad cop with him, or he needs to he needs to learn the ropes because yeah. it would be, it would be a travesty if he just goes back to Sky as a pundit because he has got so much to give back to the game, and I really really hope this hasn't yeah. damaged yeah. him too much. I mean, looking at the fixtures for the weekend, you're right, James. There is a programme of fixtures for Saturday. But the match that Monaco have got on, you know, at the weekend is so important, it could even decide how the rest of the season pans out for, for the club because they are away at fellow relegation battlers Dijon. Oh, that's huge. That is very huge. I mean, Monaco have just got 15 points at the moment. Dijon have got 17 if the home club Dijon get anything out of that game, be it a point or you know, or the or the you know, or, or the win, 
then that puts Monaco in a <laughs> horrible position, knowing that the fact that they've got to try and get something out of the next 16 games or so to try and get themselves out of the bottom three. And perhaps Monaco felt that, you know, after the defeat that they had in the uh, in the French Cup to Mets, you know, a couple of days ago, they must have decided to lose in the you know in the cup competition to a team in the tier below them. <coughs> you know, was the final straw, and it's happened before in the Premier League. It's happened throughout football, and but I think you're right, James. I think this was a club too big too soon for Thierry Henry. I would have, you know, if there'd been any other club, um, you know, in the top flight in France, barring the likes of PSG, you know, Marseille, Strasbourg, any other club like that, learning the ropes where there isn't the expectations, there isn't the, there isn't the image to try and fulfil and maintain. I think it might have been better for him, but to get a big appointment like this, and uh, as pretty much your first club appointment, it was always asking a lot, in my opinion, for Thierry Henry to make anything out of this position. In many respects, he was on a hiding to nothing. If he was successful, you know, nobody would have been really surprised. Nobody <laughs> said, yeah, you know, he can also manage as well as play. But in this situation, as you quite rightly said, you know, he if he has been sacked, like the BBC is suspecting, um, he's walking away. He's, you know, what's for say, walking away from a situation, and it'll be somebody else's fault if anything happens. You know, sixteen games with the squad they've got there. They're in the middle of the transfer window too. Any new manager's got next to no time to sort it out. So, if if, if anything, I think the Monaco board have probably left this a couple of weeks too you know too late they should if they've got any problems with his management style they should have basically decided at the start of the month and then given whoever comes in to the chance of at least three weeks of a transfer window as it is anybody that comes in now is going to be lucky if they get a few days and that's not going to help the club avoid relegation so there's a bit of a you know the timing was you know he's not the best for the club but I think also Thierry Henry made a mistake in taking this job. It would have probably been better picking up that Villa job. Did his own ego, you know, push him in this direction? We'll never know. But you know, I can't. I, can't, I could never see this being an appointment that would work right at the start, because very often great players don't make good managers. We've seen that. You know, I mean, one of the exceptions to the rule was Michel Platini. He was a great player. We all remember him as a great player. And he turned out to be a pretty decent coach and manager. You look through history at the number of players that have, you know, been world famous, but struggled to, but, but basically struggled, struggled to manage, you know, a hot dog stand in many respects. I mean, Bobby Moore, one of the, you know, the greatest, probably the greatest England captain that we've seen, was mediocre as a manager. You know, you see the players that had the skill, had the technique, you know, were famous the world over. And they, can't, they haven't got the tactical knowledge, as you said, and as you said, James, they aren't necessarily being a bit of an arse in the dressing room to be able to be a manager. I mean, look at the, one of the best managers that the Premier League's ever seen, Arsene Wenger. He was a mediocre player. You know, he didn't really make much of a playing career at all. But, in, but 
Well, at his peak, he was possibly the best manager in Britain. So, you know, I think Thierry Henry bit off more than he could chew with this appointment and probably a bit of vanity kicked in. But I hope he's now got mature maturity to realise the fact that he needs to learn his trade if he wants to be a manager. And you can't learn it at a club like Monaco. You've got to step back, go possibly go back down the ladder a little, pick a club that's not got no great expectations other than survival, and they just back him all the way. And I think that's what's going to happen if he wants to get back into it. So, you know, I think there's I think there's a bit of blame on both sides, but I think Thierry's best off out of Monaco for a while. I think <clears throat> I think how I have to agree with you on that is he needs to reevaluate uh, how he wants to do everything. But um, somebody who likes the limelight and a club that likes the limelight, Salford City, a uh, club that you obviously know quite well, Rob. Um, I've just announced that David Beckham has purchased 10% from Peter Lim um, mm-hmm. to join the rest of the class of 92 to now 60% own with the rest of the class um, Salford City so it's an interesting one especially considering he's trying to set up a football club up in Miami called Inter Miami which is due to be ready by next year yeah, I mean, I can understand possibly why he's done it, because, let's face it, David Beckham is probably not short of a penny or two. <laughs> Somewhat more so than, you know, the rest of his colleagues in the class of 92. Um, there's no question he could do this. You know, what money he could put into Salford City, as opposed to him, would be, in many respects, like, you know, change out of his pocket. You know, a bit like petty cash. So... You know, it doesn't really come as a great surprise, but, you know, that's going to make it now, so as you said, the Gang 92 are going to have, you know, the majority, well, in it's a group, they're going to have the majority, but individually, of course, Peter Lim is still going to be the majority shareholder. But, you know, the group of them can basically have a big say now, and they can, you know, chart the course that the club wants to take. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like Salford City on the basis of the documentary. I mean, many times in the podcasts, you know, of recent years, we discussed it. But, you know, I suppose, I guess I'm one of the few people who have actually been to uh, Moor Lane and spent time with the ordinary fans at Salford and the ordinary people at Salford. And there's, I say, it's not all milk and honey there. That's for sure. There is still a sizable number among the following that, are still not 100% convinced by the way the club has turned in the last few years. Um, speaking to the people who write the um, Salford City fanzine, um, who I'm in contact with and talk to quite a bit, um, there's still a few there that, I won't say hark back to the old days, but they're just not entirely sure you know, what's going on and which direction it's going and if it's necessarily the best for the long-term future of the club. The ordinary fan on the terrace is fine, but what you may think of the class of '92, well, it's everybody's. It's you know up to everybody that uh, that you know sees what's happening. Personally, the club as itself, the ordinary person, the ordinary fan, I'm fine with. But what you think of the people that run the club, well, that's up to you. But you know, it won't hurt Salford City to have the likes of David Beckham on the board, you know, as an owner. Won't hurt them. Can't see him attending many games, though. Can't see him going to places like Solihull Moors and the rest of it, though. 
Well, they're, they're away at Halifax at the weekend, so I'm assuming he'll be there. You know, um, that'll be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, I listened to. Um, I think he uh, sent a message to to the club um, to the, when when the announcement was made. Um, he either had an audio message or a video message, um, and it. it basically said that he's been wanting to do this uh, since the Neville's but skulls and gigs um, took over as well. Was that four or five years ago now, I think? Um, but he spent his whole time has been spent setting up uh, this MLS franchise, which, as you as you rightly say, starts next year um, with into Miami. But now that that's all sorted, he's now able to, um, to put to put some money into into Salford City. I don't know how much he's had to put in to get his ten percent. I don't know what the what the club's worth at the minute. Um and it is it's as you say, Rob, not 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 everybody in the Salford City fan base is is happy with this. And they're probably less so now that that someone like David Beckham's in in charge. Um oh sorry, not in charge, has has jumped on board. Um, <coughs> But the the but Peter Lim uh, must be delighted. With everything that comes along with David Beckham in terms of the marketing opportunities, um, you know they stick, they stick his face on anything Salford City related now, and it's going to go global. So from that respect, it, it's it's fantastic for the club. Um, I can I can understand why a lot of clubs don't like them. Um, because of, of the finance, I mean, nobody, nobody likes it when another club gets a load of money. I mean, nobody likes it when Man City got all their money, even though they're doing it the right way. They, um, you know, they, they've um, got. Let's let's question. Let let's let's hold off making judgment until the financial fair play rules have uh, been evaluated. Yeah, fair fair enough. Um, but you know, um, like I said. They are. They probably are the best foreign owners at Man City. They they are. Yeah. You know, they are doing. Well, I mean, they're, they're putting the money in. Um, they, it might be nefarious ways of hundred times their market value, but they um, they are. They they are doing things quite well on the. I guess um, might come down to prove me wrong, like you say, with the financial fair play. The big thing that always gets me is how Salford City, a newly promoted National League club, go to a Scottish Premier League side and take their leading scorer and give him a pay rise. That that just has never sat well with me. Um, and obviously, I'm talking about Adam Rooney there, who's smashing goals in galore for Salford. But uh, look, you know. They're not. They're not breaking any rules. I, I can understand why why people don't like them. Um, but if they if they want to compete in that area of the country, where they've got Manchester United and they've got Manchester City, they've got Liverpool, they've got any number of professional football league clubs. Um, they they've got to do something. If they if you, they're obviously an ambitious club, so they've obviously got to do something to to give themselves an edge and it's an interesting story whether you like it or not 
it's interesting and it's worth following because it will be really interesting to see how far they can go. I mean, yeah. what is Moore Lane like, Rob? I mean, I, you know, looking on their Wikipedia page, I've got it open in front of me. They, it, it only holds 5,100, so that's not going to get them very far in, mm. you know, outside of League Two. Yeah. So, and also, just as, a, as an aside... What happens if Paul Scholes takes the um, the Oldham job like he's been linked with? Because surely he can't have a share, have a ten percent shareholding one League Two club while he's managing the other. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, Moorlane has actually changed a lot since I was there, which was about two and a half <coughs> years ago now. It's changed a lot because I mean, I remember this grand old concrete stand that you know has it had its you know had its lovers and I have to admit I you know the sight of it it was is iconic but that's all gone I mean they've practically rebuilt the ground to make it you know up to a good standard I mean let's not forget there's still some clubs in league two whose capacity is only seven and eight thousand so they wouldn't have to do a lot if they got to league two to bring you know to add the extra capacity into there and as you quite rightly said they've got a lot of competition in that part of the world and they are ambitious and I don't think they're destined to be a National League club for very long. I think, I think give them two seasons, if they don't do it this season, they will be a League Two club. And then can you imagine the way that will go on, you know, in Greater Manchester, in Merseyside, and all the way through Lancashire? It's going to be, you know, the club, again, a club that everybody's going to want to either knock or praise. And it happens, but, you know, what Paul Scholes, t- you know, will choose to do if he does end up with Oldham, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure what rules there are in place with the FA as regarding ownership. It's not something I know anything about. So, you know, if it turns out that, say for an example, he does take the Oldham job and Salford City do get promoted, he's then going to have to decide, you know, is this something that he can continue with or does he you know, sell the shareholding to the rest of the class of 92 to make sure that it's, you know, it stays, you know, stays within the group? Or (coughs) does he decide that, you know, if it happens, does he step down from Oldham? So he has no conflict of interest. It's going to be an interesting one to follow, as you quite rightly say, James. And, you know, it's going to be one I'm going to, you know, keep an eye on with, um, you know, with a, a very interested eye shall we say yeah i mean i i, I think i think as, as football fans we all love a club rising through the division don't we um you know all the way back to well obviously the, the the obvious one is is wimbledon um all those years ago um you know you look you love a club to rise through and mm. and get all the way up and Salford are obviously different to clubs like um, like AFC Wimbledon in that they're not fan-owned. So while AFC Wimbledon have probably found their level, so like hovering between League One and League Two, they're real. The only ceiling for Salford City at the moment is how long Peter Lim decides to stay, how long the class of '92 decide to stay, yeah. and the stadium. Because as mm. you mentioned earlier, Kristen. Financial fair play is going to come into it, and a five thousand seat stadium or five thousand capacity stadium ain't going to get them very far. 
Um, I mean, I'm, I've got the National League table in front of me at the minute, and it, wow, <laughs> it is close. I mean, I've, I can't remember it being that close after 30 games. Um, so Salford a third. They've got Leighton Orient top and Solihull Moors. Now that is a story, isn't it? What a season they are having, and that would be amazing. I mean, mm. Salford could do it next season for me. I want Solihull up this season because they might not do that again next season. And Salford would be the fit every season while they've got these guys in charge. Salford City will be the favourites for the National League. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to get Solihull up while we can. And Harrogate Town are up there in sixth place as well. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic division at the moment. Um, there's there's no one massively cut adrift at the bottom, so there's there's no hopeless no hope a team down there. There's no one running away with it. Even the playoff positions are all really tight. The national league is a phenomenal league at the moment, and mm. it's you know it it's it's absolutely brilliant to see. It's great to see teams like Leighton Orient up at the top. It's great to see Wrexham in the playoff positions, um, you know. But it's also fantastic to see AFC filed in fourth and Harrogate in sixth and Sutton still up there mm. again and Ebsley. And, you know, I mean, anyone who, as I said before, anyone who listened to our first podcast knows how much we all love non-league football. And it's, it's probably a massive passion for all of us. And, you know, th- this is, wow, it's, it's, it's a joy to behold this division at the moment. Just to just to throw one thing into this, just while we're quickly looking at the National League, given the teams that are in the bottom four places now, if it was to be like that at the end of April, you've got the very real prospect of Braintree Town being in the National League North. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because you've got Braintree bottom, Maidstone, Aldershot, Chesterfield. Chesterfield, yep. you know, if they go down, that's the North Division for them, no question. Maidstone... National League South, not a problem. It's a question what they decide to do with Aldershot and Braintree. If Braintree go down, there might have to be another case of the pre-season lottery if the FA decide to reallocate clubs between the leagues. Yeah, and look, at the, the, look at the three above Chesterfield. I mean, yeah, Havant, Dover, Maidenhead. And Havant and Waterloo. We could have four southern teams go down. Yeah. Which and that's going to make... be absolutely... You know. I mean, you, I mean, you, I mean, it comes back to Gloucester again that we spoke about many times in the last few years. Yeah. Gloucester could get up because always could go up to the north. You've got clubs that you know, for all intents and purposes, to the rest of the country, I mean, the south. But because of the way the distribution of the clubs were at that level, they could be in the northern division. It's just, right. but the, but you're right. The national league at the minute is just an amazing competition. It's the closest. There's still time for clubs from mid table to make a run. I mean, let's not forget 10 points between, you know, what's that, 13th and 7th. You get a run of three or four wins, you're pushing on the, or pushing on the top seven in the playoff places. It's that close. You know, this is what a league competition should be. And it's brilliant. Absolutely. And it, it's, it has, it's not always been like this. Most clubs in the, in the National League are professional leaders. Uh, it is basically League Three or Division Five in Old Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many professional clubs in there now that have fallen on hard times. I mean, you know, we've seen York City and Stockport County drop through this division. These these are teams that I watched Huddersfield Town play season in, season out in 
in Division 2, 3 and 4 and to see them dropping down into the National League and then through that into the National League North and to see clubs like Chesterfield down there now, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, everybody says the Championship is the hardest league to get out of. It isn't because the National League is, I think. Um, it's, it's, it is brilliant. And we are really lucky that we have a channel like BT Sport that, that show the games. Um, unfortunately, they broadcast them at the same time that, that Sky are broadcasting a Premier League game, so they won't get the figures. And um, I could probably guarantee you that the Saturday lunchtime National League game is probably always better than the, uh, the Saturday lunchtime Premier League game. Mm. Let's, let's stay north of the border. You've mentioned Adam Rooney, who was actually the league league's leading scorer in 2015 um, for Aberdeen. And <clears throat> we've got two more stories to cover. I just want to mention, first of all, you said that the National League is tight, but <coughs> it's one of the tightest uh, Scottish Premier that there's been for a number of years. Uh, bearing in mind that Celtic are only, I think, uh, what, let me change my screen, uh, a one-point clear of Kilmarnock at the moment, and the Rangers back for the two points. So, although Celtic have a game in hand, it's still phenomenally tight between first and fourth, mm-hmm. uh, with only three points separating th- the uh, four teams. Yeah, I... And that, that game in hand for Celtic is against St. Johnston, who Ooh. I believe have the best home record in Scotland. I think I heard that um, in the last day or two. Um, and they're in fifth, and they're only eight points behind Celtic. So it's, it, it's, what, it's what Scotland's been crying out for for a decade, is to have a competitive division. Like you said, there are three points separate in the top four. I'm... And Kilmarnock, a second. They beat Rangers in midweek um, to go above them into second. And that that is a story and a half. Um, Steve Clark is is the manager there at the moment. Um, a, a fantastic coach, um, a brilliant assistant manager, very, very well respected in the game. Has tried a few times to be a number one and hasn't delivered. Has finally found a club that he fits. And mm. it just seems to have lined up for mm. him. Um, I don't know if it's a failure of, of Celtic that this has all come about or whether things have just evened themselves out. I don't, I mm. don't I, watch a lot of Scottish football, um, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. I know mm. I know Celtic have had a lot of a lot of issues going on, I think. I think uh, Brendan Rodgers hasn't been happy with a lot of the way things had been done. Um, Stephen Gerrard's doing an amazing job at Rangers. Um, obviously, everyone knows the history and the story of Rangers. So for them to be in touch at the moment, they are desperate, of course, to stop Celtic uh, setting the record for uh, uh, consecutive titles, which they, I think they both, Celtic and Rangers, hold it at nine. So they are desperate to stop Celtic getting ten. I think they're on seven oh. at the minute. Um, oh. it's, it's, it's just phenomenal. I mean, oh. I, I don't watch a lot of Scottish football. I've watched a few games because Stephen Gerrard's up there now. and um, So I've watched a couple of their games and then obviously a couple of the old firms because it's Gerrard v his former manager in Brendan Rodgers. 
I'd love Kilmarnock to win it. What a story that would be. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, would be look, more, yeah. that would be more of a miracle than Leicester winning the Premier League. It would. I mean, when you look at the top six, um, when you think about it, of the top six then, four of them, you would, you know, on a re- any reasonable season, you'd expect them to be somewhere in the top six. You know, Celtic, Rangers, Aberdeen, Hearts, you know, their Hearts are back in sixth. And, you know, in any given season, you expect those four teams to be, you know, up in the top half of the league. But to see Kilmarnock <laughs> and St Johnston, and just, again, just looking at the stats, they're actually a better team playing away from home. You know, at home... St Johnston have only picked up 16 points. Away uh, is it that way around? Sorry, it's that yeah. way around. Yeah, away from right. away from away from the home ground, they've picked up 21 points out of um, 10 games. Oh, you that's, know, they're better. Yeah, better right. away from home. And it you know, Nevin, it was Pat Nevin on. Sorry, Rob, it was Pat Nevin mm-hmm. on Five Live. He said because St Johnston are playing a, on a 3G. That was yeah. it because he, he said he, he looked, it was actually the better away from home. So yes, yeah, they yeah. are. I mean, so, um, but given that, and given the fact that if you go, you know, if you're at home and you know St. Johnson are coming and you know their form, you're going to think, this game, we're going to have to play out of our skins because they could take us, and they probably will. So, you know, and the surprising thing for me is actually to see, like, like, you know, Hibernian back in eight. You know, again, they were a club that nine times out of ten, nine seasons out of ten, you'd see them in the top six. And this season, they're struggling. You know, you've got Motherwell, who are usually a very good mid-table side in the Premiership most of the time. You know, they're back in ninth. And you're just thinking, you know, there's a few things turned upside down in the, you know, in the Scottish Premiership. But that's, what, that's what's making it such a great competition this season. Because, you know, you're seeing, you know, Kilmarnock, who for a long time, have been anonymous in Scottish football. They've never really done anything. They've, you know, they've, in some, they've sometimes been down in, um, you know, but down in the first division, and sometimes they've been in the Premier League, Premiership. You know, they're a club like that. But this season, something has worked. You know, everything just seems to be clicking into place for them, and the way they're going, you know, they're going to be in, a, you know, a good shout of finishing, you know, second or third, depending on what happens. Because if if the Celtic match that was that's the game in hand was being played at Celtic Park. No one was Johnson coming. Celtic v St Johnson. You see, that game now, Celtic will be knowing that, that St Johnston will, you know, fancy the chances even at Celtic Park because of the way they've played the rest of the season. And so that's going to be a huge game. St Johnston get that. They're back, you know, providing form stays the same. They're, again, they've closed the gap on the teams above them. Celtic have been dragged back into it a bit. And it tightens it up even further. I mean, you know, we've said the you know we've said the national leagues a tight league. We've said, you know, the championship at times has been you know a tight league. But when you look at this, top four, top five, you know, it's not to say Hearts in sixth can't make a run for it and again get get close. You know, there's just so many possibilities in the Scottish Premier League at the moment. You just don't know which way it's going to turn, and I think that's going to be the greater competition come to the end of the season. It's yeah, definitely I mean, got the more fun to watch. It's it's fantastic because Celtic are generally like twenty points clear by now. Don't they normally yeah. win the league by, by a 30, 30 or point end mark. Of March. Yeah, usually yeah. by the end of March. Yeah, usually by the end of March we've got it won, haven't they? So I yeah. I, ju- I just hope that the Celtic board don't see it as a failure by Brendan Rodgers. Um, it I think it's just teams have caught them up. 
Um, yeah. You know, I yeah. think Celtic went out, didn't they, in the Champions League qualifiers? So they, they they haven't got that money coming in this season. So so that's going to yeah. affect them going forward next. You know, in the summer, obviously in January as well this month mm. and next season because they're not going to have the Champions League money. So the budgets are going yeah. to be readjusted. Tighter. So that could, yeah. yeah. So that could allow the other teams just to close the gap a little bit more again. And yeah, it. <laughs> Nobody, I, I, I watch a lot of different leagues. I mean, I, I watch, not religiously, but I do watch French football. I do watch German football. I do watch the Premier League, only because other field are in it. Um, I do watch non-leagues. I do watch the odd Scottish game here and there, um, and the championship, because it's amazing. Um, I don't like to see any team dominating. So any no. league, historically, a team dominates. I love it when it closes down. I'm loving the Bundesliga at the minute because mm. Bayern Munich are chasing and Borussia Dortmund are top with a phenomenal English player playing for them. Um, so I, I love it when the power shifts in a division. Mm. Um, it's it, it, when I'm a neutral. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just I mean, just touching on the Bundesliga, you're right. I mean, but then again, you've got one or two clubs again in the top six of the Bundesliga that you might not think of. You know, traditionally being in that position at this stage of the season, you've got uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. You don't often see them that high up in third. It's been a while since they've had a season as good as this. Leipzig, yeah. again, uh, Wolfsburg have been. You know, Le- there, Leipzig, there, are very, Leipzig are very much the um, kind of like the Salford of yeah, of Germany. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, I mean, if you think about it, we're starting to see. You know, in a lot of leagues, <laughs> sometimes you get seasons where the traditional dominating clubs dominate and, you know, there's nothing really that makes it worth watching. And then you get some seasons where all of a sudden you get quite a few leagues where you get, you know, unregarded clubs that perhaps, you know, nobody ever really thinks of. They know they're there, but they just never think of them as being a successful club. All of a sudden, for one or two seasons, they're up there, they're in it. And we're seeing it, like I say, we're seeing it in a few leagues and it's just, it just, in some respects... It brings football, you know, it, it brings a bit more realism into the game. It basically brings it back to, you know, us, us that are just watching and, you know, just enjoy the game for what it is. To see an unregarded club get themselves, you know, a good way at the table, top four, top six, get the rewards for a great season. And it just makes football, for me, in many respects, that, you know, you can still get the unregarded clubs still making a name for themselves and still surprising everybody and it's just great to see it allows fans to dream um looking at the bundesliga table um you've got eintracht frankfurt in fifth yeah um they won they won the german cup last season beat they absolutely destroyed by munich in the final um Mm. in and as it goes nico kovac left frankfurt and went to buy munich in the summer um and in spain um, a league I do watch every week. You've had Alaves this season, who are still up there fighting for a Champions League place. Little old yeah, Alaves, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, massively. I think their claim to fame was they got beaten five four by Liverpool in the UEFA Cup final. In yeah, I think I'm, yeah, ridiculously crazy match. If you, I, <laughs> I think urge I everyone to go and watch that on YouTube because it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing because I think that was where Liverpool came back with a lot of goals very late on, didn't they? Yes, it went yes. well. It went to extra time, yeah. And I'm pretty yeah. sure our fans were leading at one point, yeah. Yeah, um, I think Liverpool got a few with right very late on, yeah. But 
you know yourself, Rob. You support Hull City. You have <laughs> yeah, seen your team in the fourth division, same oh, as yes. I have with Huddersfield. You've yes. seen your team in the Premier League. You know, yes. you've watched your team go all the way up and all yeah. the way back down. Um, yeah. What is the one thing that a football fan wants to do? They want to dream. Yeah. They, they, they want, you know, and neutral fans or fans of a club who go through these clubs, they want to latch oh. on to a, a story. Like mm. last season in Serie A, you had Napoli, who came within a couple of games of upsetting Juventus and winning the, winning the mm. division, and unfortunately fell short. Um, like I say, you've got likes of Frankfurt. You've you know you've got in the National League the teams that we mentioned before. Mm. Just fans of those clubs just want to dream. Mm. Um, Kilmarnock fans must yeah. be in absolute heaven at the minute. You know, mm. Leicester, Leicester when they won the league. Every just, just so I just try and put something in perspective, there will be Kilmarnock fans alive still who visited and saw them when they won the championship in 1965. They will, but mm. that was that, even those fans will be dreaming because it was it was over half a century ago, you know. Yeah. And I, without knowing Kilmarnock's history, I'm guessing they've had more downs and ups in those five decades. You know, every, every football fan who didn't support Tottenham or Manchester United or Chelsea or Arsenal wanted Leicester City to win the Premier League three mm. seasons ago. Mm. Everybody. I mean, I'll actually, I'll actually say I didn't because I thought you made yeah. a mockery of it. Really? <laughs> yes, because this, it's still to this day, something is wrong with that. Something doesn't sit right with me. For them to come out of nowhere, win, have this dream season, and then are almost going to be relegated this season. I think part of the fact was that they found a tactic that enabled them to, in many respects, have to face you know 60-65% possession against. But they were able to keep catching teams on the break, on the counter. And winning games that way, they didn't necessarily dominate to get many games, but they knew how to absorb the pressure, absorb what was being thrown at them, and then take advantage of what scraps they got to break away, and manage to, you know, nick, you know, in many respects, and possibly an undeserved title. But in the end, over the course of the season, they did the hard work and they got the results. And we always say the league table doesn't lie, and that season. They managed to make something of, you know, what they had. But because the following season everybody worked out what Leicester's tactics were, it didn't work anymore. And so they had to fight. And they found out that, in some respects, having to fight doesn't necessarily, you know, didn't bring them the same rewards. And so, you know, they had a rough season, of it, you know, the season after. It's a case of just taking your chances. And, you know, Leicester were good enough to do that, that one season. Could never work we, again because we, everybody's we, worked it out. But to be fair, and just to go back to the um, to earlier in the podcast, Monaco finished second last season. Yeah. So you know, it's the, these things do happen. I of care. Obviously, Monaco sold all all their best players. Um, mm. But I'd, no, I'd, for me, there's nothing untoward. You, if you if you remember, all the other teams, I think, had changed their managers. They were all going through mm. periods of uncertainty, periods of transition. And, and Leicester just mm. had this, like Rob said, they just had this brand of football that, that nobody could deal with. They just 
they they hit you on the counter attack and they were devastating. And Jamie Vardy mm. had the season of his life. And Golo Kante was this unknown player that that was signed from Belgium um, that turned into the world's best player in his position. Um, and it was, it was I watched a lot of Leicester that season and they were an absolute joy to watch because they would they would just at you. They would just they'd, they'd let you come. They'd then take the ball off you and within six seven seconds it was in the back of your net and you just couldn't deal with it and it must it must have been a phenomenal experience being in that stadium you know i said about man city's owners being good good owners but you know uh good old vishai at leicester city i think has to uh, take the award as the as the best the best foreign owner probably ever in the premier league at the moment because you know, his his legacy lives on and they are I'd, they, they were amazing that season and they, for some reason they have the expectation that they should be in the top six even now and they just I'd, you know I think it, it will eventually ruin them but you've just got to enjoy it while it lasts I think and um, you know I just, well unfortunately it's lasted an hour so we're going to have to wrap this up <laughs> <laughs> just before we go I just want to put the situation in Scotland into perspective between them, Celtic and Rangers have won 84.7% of the titles ever in yeah. um, Scotland. Yeah. Scotland. Oh yeah, but so, Alex, Alex Ferguson is still the last manager that didn't manage either one of them to win the league. Yes. So that, that was three and a half decades ago. So exactly. You know, it's, hopefully Kilmarnock and Stevie Clark will uh, will do it this time. I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful. Uh, I am hopeful that we're back, uh, not next week, because unfortunately I'm away. So it will be the week after, where I'll be in sunny Sofia, uh, hoping not to freeze my ass off. But James, <laughs> where, can we, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, it's been amazing, as always, guys. I've really, really enjoyed this, uh, this one tonight, um, apart from, obviously, the, uh, the, the difficult one that we had to talk about at the start. Um, I'm on Twitter at GamerJamesFM, um, so follow me on there for uh, for blogs and YouTube and everything. Um, general just of town, love it hopefully with the new manager. Um, and yeah, okay, I guess we go again in the fortnight. And Rob, where can we get you? Well, I'm still on Twitter with the Pardon the Bullet and Explain handle of David You want to explain that? You keep saying it's an explanation. Facebook we go again and you can always uh, go over to Twitter and we go again podcast uh, to follow us on there as well but really whatever you've been doing I thank you for listening <laughs>